Forest City Church. Anyone and everyone. When I was a sophomore in high school, my parents moved us from Granite City, Illinois, which is a little steel mill outside of St. Louis, a little steel mill town, um, to East Texas. Now you already know, there's a world of difference between Granite City, Illinois and Brownsboro, Texas. And I remember as we moved that summer, I was so worried about one moment if you've ever moved to a high school, you know exactly the moment I'm talking about because there's nothing more frightening than to walk into a school and not know anybody. It's, it's horrifying. It's, it's really tough that very first hour when you go to class and you know that everyone knows you're new, you look different, talk different. But still, the one moment I dreaded all summer, the one, one moment was at 11.30, when I was gonna have to go to that lunchroom. You know what I'm saying? I was thinking about the lunchroom all summer because like the lunchroom is when you know you got nobody, right? And I still remember like, I can remember, it's like burned into my subconscious. Everything about that moment, walking to the lunchroom, I still remember like, the little uh, trays that they served the food in at Brownsboro High School and they were yellow and they were blue and they all had like indents and that's where they put all of the slop. No, no offense if you work at the school, but man, it was bad. And I remember grabbing that tray and walking across the lunchroom and looking at these tables that would pop down and they had the little blue circle seats. Anybody have any of those blue circle seats, you know? And I remember sitting down by myself putting down that blue tray and thinking, just eat as fast as you can, bro. Eat as fast as you can. Get out of here as fast as you can. And I was probably halfway through what was either applesauce or pizza. I couldn't really tell. <laughs> when out of the peripheral, I saw somebody walk in my direction and right next to me. Now I'm gonna get teared up. What you'll know about me is I cry all the time. I just cry, I can't help it. It's one of the most touching moments of my whole life. A kid scoots next to me and sits down in the circle next to me. And I was like, hey. He goes, hey, my name's Ty Thomason. I go, hi, my name's Eric Parks. He said, you care if I eat lunch with you? And in that moment, I felt saved. Ty, come to find out, wasn't just anybody. He was high school quarterback. Drove a red Camaro, of course, right? <laughs> he was the coolest kid in the school, and the coolest kid in the school came and sat by somebody he didn't have to sit by. And I thought so much about the reality of that moment in our lives. And the truth is, every single one of us have the same fear that we'll walk through life all by ourselves, that we'll be alone. And in fact, if you look at the Bible, this idea of community and being connected to other human beings, like it's at the very beginning of this book, right? Because that's when 
God's going down. He's looking at everything that he's done. And he goes, oh, man, I did that. That was really good. Oh, man, I did that. That was really good. Oh, I did that. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, he says, it isn't good. That's not good, actually, that man should be alone. That's not good. You see, human beings, we were made to be weaved into something special, connected together. And yet, if you've been around this planet for very long, it's like if you've ever managed people, why is it that if you manage people, you feel like most of your time is spent keeping them from blowing the whole thing up, right? Because we as humans do this. We're made for it. We need it. But then it gets messed up, we get hurt, we get damaged, and we say never again. Anybody ever have one of those moments? Where you're like, well, I'd just rather be alone than to get beat up. I've heard this a lot, you know, especially as a pastor, especially serving a pastor in this day and age. It's like, man, why are you doing this work? Because we live in a time that is the most divided time ever known to man. In fact, there was a BBC survey where 20,000 people from 27 countries were asked, tell us about how divided you think the world is. And did you know that of all the people surveyed, all but two countries considered themselves so deeply divided that it was unreconcilable, that we could never be people to each other. And we, us, our country, we were number four on the list. 90%, 9 out of 10 people surveyed says, yeah, man, it's so broken. It's so broken that we could never get it put right. This is the day we live in. We are divided by politics, by hurt. And this is what I fear is that we're building the wrong kinds of tables when the table that Jesus laid out 2,000 years ago is exactly what we need for this day and age. Now, let me say something. Over the next four weeks, we are launching in the most important series we've ever, ever done at this church. Now, good news for you. We've really only been around a year, so there may be more important series some other day, but as of right now, this is the most important series we've ever done. We've been thinking about what kind of church do we want to be in Elgin? What kind of place do we want to be? How do we articulate it so that when people walk in the door, they go, okay, I know what y'all are about. And over the next four weeks, actually here, the next five weeks, we're going to lay out this vision of what we call the seventh floor, grounded in the gospels and put on full display in the early church in Acts. The seventh floor is a term you'll become familiar with, and this is what I'm going to ask you to do. If this is a place where you're like dipping your toe in the water and you're trying to check it out, if you're like, man, I don't really know. If you heard that first story and go, I know a little bit about some hurt. I know a little bit about some pain. I'm not really sure if I want to step into church relationships. I got you. I understand. But maybe consider being a part of this series over the next five weeks, and then we have something we're going to give you on October 30th. The last week of this series, actually it might be November 6th, but the last is November 6th. We're going to put something in your hand, a gift that helps you understand, like, how do we live out seventh floor 
Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 13, John chapter 17. How do we live this out in this community, in this region? So stick with us. So what, do, what kind of tables do we want to build in a divided time? Well, let me tell you what I think has been happening. This is what I think has been happening as we've looked around and considered like, hey, who should be at my table? And let's use a table as a metaphor for like the communities that we do build. This is what I've been noticing about what we do. Where are those? Here they are. When we find ourselves in divided times and when we find ourselves being hurt by those divisions, the natural instinct of every human being, it is hardwired into you, is to create tables of like-minded people because those tables are now safe. You don't get hurt. You won't get canceled. And so what we do is we begin to build tables where we put certain things at the center of those tables. Now, it could be the St. Louis Cardinals. Many of you are like, God knows why, right? It could be politics. Whatever it is, we, we put these things at the center and we say, well, here's the good news. Anybody who centers around this centerpiece, I know I'm safe, right? Like, it's all Cardinals fans. We're all good. Or, or, or maybe you're like, oh, I put at the centerpiece of my table this blue hat. And I know if everybody at my table wears this blue hat, or if they wear this red hat, or if they wear God's team's hat, I'm safe. And so we build these communities that are homogeneous, that all look the same, and why? Because truthfully, deep down, we want community. We just don't want to get dinged in it. We're afraid that if we bring other people at the table who don't look like us and think like us and act like us, well, then maybe, maybe it's going to be too unsafe. And in divided times, the best thing to do is run to your corner, run to your table, and put at the center a thing that you know is safe. And because of that, the divisions actually get deeper. They actually get deeper. You know, I've heard about, so many of us speak about Jesus and what he means to us personally. But you have to remember that Jesus picked the time that he came into this world very intentionally. I'm going to talk about what he means to you personally, but I, I want to talk a little bit about the time in which Jesus came because it's going to talk to you and all of us and explain something corporately. See, if you think about when Jesus came, I would argue that Jesus came into a world that was more divided than we've ever known. Right? You had Jews and Gentiles that never spoke to each other. You had slaves that were everywhere. The class system was extensive. The same racial rivalries that we have today, those racial rivalries were everywhere in the Roman Empire. This is what Jesus came to. Divisions between male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, these were massive. And it was into this divisive milieu that Jesus brought his gospel. Not on accident, absolutely on purpose. He came to an incredibly divided time with his gospel on purpose. This was his plan. 
And I was thinking a lot about what Jesus said in John chapter 17 because it explains a little bit of the power of the gospel in divided times. Look what Jesus says. In John chapter 17, he's talking to God. He says, as you, Father, are in me, I'm in you. May also they, he's talking about us, the church, may they be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given them so that they may be one as we're one. I and them, you and me, that they may become completely one. So that the world will know, listen to this, this is so important. So the world will know that you've sent me and have loved them. Jesus was saying something really important here, gang. Jesus is talking to God and he's trying to help. You know, he's, in this prayer, he's, he's praying that God will help us understand the reality is that us sitting at tables absolutely tied together by something other than blood or flag or country, when we're tied together by something other than team loyalty, when we're tied together by him, the whole world notices. Because when you have a different centerpiece, that nobody else is expecting, everyone goes, wait a minute, how in the world is that happening? Yeah. Now, the reality is the centerpiece that Jesus was talking about was quite simple. He says it in that verse. He said, the table that we want to build has to be centered on one thing. He says it in John chapter 17. Me. When our tables are centered on Jesus, something absolutely unbelievably, unbelievable happens. And I think so often we talk about the apologetics of how do we bring people to this Jesus? And it's like, well, you got to know lots of verses and you have the right things to say and you have to have really good music and you have to have this church service. What Jesus says is, do you want the world to notice that I'm real? Build a table around me and watch what happens. Build a table where the seats around this table aren't filled with like-minded people around politics or sports, but centered fully in me. And I'm telling you, the whole world will be like, wait, wait, what? How in the world are y'all crazy people getting in the same room and not killing one another? How are you doing that? How is it that you can disagree on fundamental issues? But in this, you're united? How is that? You know, the Apostle Paul tries to hammer this home to us. And I've had so many people say, all right, what are you all trying to build? What are you guys trying to do? What is it? What is it? What's the philosophy? And the truth is, I told Steve this. Steve and I have stacked hands on this. <clears throat> We're actually not trying to build anything. Um, we, we don't think it's our job to build anything. We're supposed to remind you what Jesus came to build and then invite you into it. See, it's almost like, you know, I, I don't really like the Cubs much. Um, and the more you're around, you'll see, uh, you'll see me and, me and uh, Steve go, this is the one thing we cannot unite on. But I will say this, like, when you think about Ivy, 
And you think about, like, what's happening out in the center field at Wrigley. I've often thought, you know, really what we're to do is build a little framework. We don't do anything with the ivy. The ivy grows. Like, if you put it in good soil, that ivy's going to grow. And if we create just frameworks for things to grow onto, healthy frameworks, it will grow. Our job isn't to build anything. Our job is to remind you what Jesus came to build and invite you into that. That's what this is all about. And this is why the Apostle Paul, at the very beginning of Ephesians, as he's talking to the church of Ephesus, begins to hammer home. Here's the whole thing. Here it is. Folks, if you get nothing else out of this talk, you have to listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this idea, this table. Here's the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read a big passage to you. So just hang with me. It's going to be on the screens. If you have your Bibles, you can pull them out. But it's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth, you were called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision. Remember, he's reminding all of the Gentiles, he's reminding them about something. He says, now remember that at the time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, so like here's the good news, remind you, you wasn't good for you, wasn't going so great for you. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now let me stop for a second. I think most of us understand this as the gospel, right? Like, we were really far away from God and this loving God who, who endures our ignorance and our stupidity. His love endures all of, like, the journeys we go on. He still loved us, and he said, hey, no, 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 I love you, and you can come toward me. Like, you can be reconciled in me. In fact, most of the time, this is the part of the gospel that we talk about all the time. It's always about like, oh, me and God, like I get to be reconciled with him. And that's really, really good. That is good news. It's really great news when you wake up one day and realize, wow, in spite of all the silly things that I've done in my life, I, I get to be made a son and a daughter of the king. That's like grace. But what I fear is too often we've left out what isn't even the second part of the gospel. It's just as much a part of the gospel as that. When the Apostle Paul says this, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, these two people, he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh, this is in his death, the law with its covenants, its commandments and regulations. His purpose, here it is, folks, listen. When it says his purpose, this is what he came to do. He said his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. See, the gospel is about like me getting reconciled with this God who loved me so much. But the gospel also is 
that we're reconciled to each other in Jesus. That you and me, we're reconciled to each other. This isn't a political construct or a new idea that's like, oh, it, it, it must be a new kind of like idea that we're seeing in the media. No, no, from the very beginning, Jesus said the gospel is you reconcile with me and you reconcile with each other. And if you're not reconciled with each other, then you're missing a portion of the gospel. I was thinking, because I like word pictures, like how do I... How do I overdo analogies? Plus, I'm kind of like watching Steve, and he has like custom glasses made with stuff in the eyes, and he wears them around. I'm like, okay, all right, game on. Okay, so I'm going to bring two analogies this week. So let me, let me see, how could I help us understand? This, this is a thread, okay? This is a thread. So let's imagine this thread is you, okay? This is... Part of the gospel where God sees you and he, he picks you up and he says, you're, you're pretty awesome. You're pretty great. I, I love you and you can be a part of my family. But see, it's interesting because the gospel isn't just about you being picked up. Because when you think about like the thread by itself, these threads are easily broken. Even when we know Jesus. Right? They're easily broken. Now, some of you are like, He's going to do a magic trick, isn't he? I, I don't know how to do magic. But I am going to show you something better. You know what happens in a community with thread? It's something that looks a lot like this. You know, this is made up of that thread. It's just made up of literally thousands and thousands of them. Weaved together in a very specific pattern. If you think about the power of this new kind of community that Jesus was coming to build, this is a great example of what he wants to do with us. He wants to weave us into something not based on our hats or our ideas with no one at the center. And let me say, this center of the table, Christians, listen, now listen to me. I don't know why we do this. But sometimes we won't put hats at the table or teams at the table, but we will put pastors at them. And we go, oh, I like that Steve Carter. I'm going to put him at the center of my table. Or I like that Eric Parks. I'm going to put him at the center of my table. Put, put it, put whoever you want. And then we build a whole thing around this person. This center of this table was not meant for me, and it was not meant for Steve, and it wasn't meant for Bria or Leonard. It was meant for one person and one person alone, and it was Jesus. Now think, think. Think what happens around a Jesus community where he's at the center. If you use this as an analogy, two things beautiful. Number one, you get weaved into a community, and when you get weaved in, something strong happens. That little string that I could break, listen, you can't rip this with your hands. I can't pull it apart. There's nothing I can do to this thing. It is strong. But the other thing about Jesus-centered communities, these new kinds of communities, is when the threads all look different, and you weave them together, something beautiful happens. Think about how many different colors of thread are used in that. The patterns of its intricacy and how beautiful it looks. This is what happens. It's not all one color. It's all not one race. It's not one sort of 
political persuasion. This is a place built with all kinds of people from all over the place. Nobody's impressed. When you build a table that's filled with all the same kind of people, because the world expects in a divided time for us to do that. It's not very impressive. Nobody really takes notice. But when you build a Jesus-centered table where anyone's welcome, where everyone can sit, we all center on the person of Jesus, I'm telling you, the whole world will notice that in this family, the old distinctions of race and ethnicity and gender and social status, they're gone. Why? Because the first part of reconciliation helps us see the second part. No matter what you've done, you are a son and a daughter of a king. You're an image bearer, which means that you and me are brothers and sisters. Us, all of us are image bearers. No matter the mistakes, no matter our disagreements, no matter how we interpret certain passages of scripture, when we are built on the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on that cross for our sins, that he was buried and rose again on three days, that he was born a virgin and part of a triune God, this is it. When we center around this Jesus, something beautiful happens. And this is what happened in Acts chapter 2, isn't it? A bunch of people started breaking bread together and said, once the Spirit fell on them and they sat around the table, this interesting group, it said that they shared everything they had and they sold all their property and then they broke bread. And much of my ministry, we've talked about the dream of the Acts 2 church. But the reality is, I actually think there's a better dream. I know some of you are like, uh-oh, here we go. It's a heresy coming. I promise it's not. I think you just have to forward from Acts chapter 2 nine chapters to Acts chapter 13. Because I think Acts chapter 13 is actually the most full version of who we hope to be as a community. Because it was in Acts chapter 13 when the church went to Antioch. And it is in Acts chapter 13 when we know for sure that that church in Antioch was multi-ethnic. It was diverse. Read, the first four people that are listed are all ethnic minorities. Acts chapter 13 is the fullness of who we hope to be as a church. You know, the most subversive thing that we can do in a divided world is to have really long tables and really low walls where the only thing that qualifies you to sit is your allegiance to Jesus. That everything we do is in Jesus. That our politics come second to Jesus. The hats that we come in with, they go second to Jesus. The Cubs, they go like eighth to Jesus. But Jesus only. Jesus first. And if we do that, then you'll see Cardinals fans and Cubs fans and White Sox fans and Packers fans and Bears fans all sitting around the table together 
being like, yeah, we don't disagree. We disagree on lots of these things, but in this, in this, in this, in this, we are unified. You can't break us apart because we're centered on him. I've said this often. Steve and I, early on, stacked hands on this idea. It said, look, we want to build a church that looks like Elgin because we believe Elgin looks a lot like heaven. Look at what it says in Revelation chapter 7 when it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne of God. Like all kinds of people from all kinds of places. We, you'll hear us use phrases like anyone and everyone. This is what we're trying to say. When we say long tables and low walls, this is what we're trying to say. We want to build a community, a new kind of community that is beautifully diverse and incredibly strong that cannot be pulled apart because we are not grounded in blood or flag or family. We are united around him, the only one that has the power to pull us together and keep us together. This is what we hope to build. Or this is what we hope to let grow. And our invitation to you is, like, would you join us? Because this is what Jesus said. He said, the glory that you've given me, Father, I've given them. He's given you this. So what? That we could be one. Like his glory is in you so that we could do this. We could. We could do this. We could be one. Just as we're one, Jesus said, I and them, you and me. They may be completely one, a table centered around Jesus. And you know, it's interesting because so often we get asked, like, how old is this thing? And what, how'd this whole thing start? And the truth is, um, I had very little interest in planting a church or being a lead pastor at a church. That's being really kind. I had zero interest in doing it in 2019. I didn't want to be a pastor. I had been doing this for 20 years of my life, and there's a long story, but it was painful. And I'm like, yeah, I think what I'll do is I'm an accountant by trade. I'm going to go be a nerd for a little bit. I met Steve on a drive up in Colorado in March of 2020, like, literally the day that the pandemic broke out. I always think, I know when the pandemic broke out because I remember Tom Hanks got it. And once he got it, I was like, oh yeah, it's, you know, it's all happening now. Forrest Gump has it. Um, but we were driving up and we had this holy moment. We've told the story before, but it's when God began to work on my heart about like, hey man, maybe you're done, but maybe I'm not. Maybe you're done, that's nice. But maybe I'm not. And just a few weeks later, as the world shut down, I found myself at home. It was Good Friday. And Chrissy, my wife, and I were sitting in the front room, and I started to just cry and be like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. But I think we're supposed to go back to Rockford in the northwest suburbs and do something different. And my wife's a saint. She said, okay. She goes, but Graham's got to finish high school. 
Our son was a senior in high school at the time, and I wasn't going to move him because I remember the lunchroom. <laughs> and so for the first year, like what I committed to, and Carter committed to this, this was in Rockford, not in Elgin yet, that we would commute. He was coming from Phoenix. I was flying from Denver. And when I first got to to Rockford, I'm like, well, I don't want to live in a, in a hotel because it's the worst. I mean, I like that they make your bed, but beyond that, it's the worst, right? And so there was this new building downtown. And if you don't know Rockford, it's actually a ton like Elgin. There's a river that runs through the middle of the city. There's an old town town just like this one. Well, this building was brand new and I went to the seventh floor and um, it was completely open. So I took room 704. And a few weeks later, I began talking to Carrington. And you guys have seen, know Carrington, he leads. Um, he's here about every other week. And his wife, Ebony, and Charmon. And I said, hey, we're going to build something brand new, man, like a Jesus-centered table. I don't even know how we're going to do it, but would you help me do it? And they said yes, and it was longer conversation than that, I promise you. They're like, where should we live? And I'm like, well, it just so happens that there's this floor and everybody, like there's, all the rooms are open. And so they took 701 and then Charmon took 705 and then Carter moved into 706 right across from me. Then Lauren, who you've seen lead worship, she moved into 707 and pretty soon we were everybody on the seventh floor plus. Everybody who was moving toward this vision of an Acts 13 church, a new kind of community, we all lived on the same floor and I actually, I thought it was a little bit annoying at first. Guys, I'm way older, closer to 50 than I am to 40. And the idea of staying up past 10 o'clock, that sounds awful. And all these young folks are around and we start to do life together because we're there. Carter would wander in. Actually, I would go into Carter's apartment because Carter's house looked like a drug den because he literally had one box spring and a half put together chair. And that was his furniture for a year. I'm like, bro, you couldn't even finish the chair? But it was interesting because um, about February, we'd all been living in this place for about six months and some friends, some of you would know him, James Pape came to town. And James was hurting because we were right in the middle of all the Asian hate things that were going on. It was just really awful time. And he and I were sitting on a windowsill and I had thrown a party. Now, this is what you need to know about me. Um, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. So I'm always up for a really good adventure and I'm always up for a really good party. So like if, if a party's going on, I'm like, oh, is there a party? Can I come? So we were throwing this party. It was probably a super spreader event. Because there were literally at this point 60 or 70 people that were in my apartment, they were down in Carrington's apartment, and James looked at me halfway through and he goes, dude, Parker, look around. And I remember sitting back, I go, yeah, what? And he goes, bro, where else in the world is this happening? He goes like black and brown and white and young and old and rich and poor, and we're just kicking it in a space together. He goes, this is the gospel. And literally to that point, I hadn't realized it. I was just like hanging out, missing my family. And I looked around and went, oh my gosh, this is it. 
There was then story after story over the next year of God binding this thing together on the seventh floor. And soon it became clear to us, seventh floor wasn't meant for like the Talcott building in Rockford. Seventh floor has to go everywhere. Because seventh floor is Acts chapter 13. It's Jesus' vision in John chapter 17. It's the gospel as Paul lays out in Ephesians 2. Seventh floor, that's just how we say it. But it is gospel. And we began to think, should, should we do something in Elgin? And let me tell you, every church consultant in the world was like, bro, you're in the middle of a church turnaround in Rockford? that you, it's reinventing itself. This is a terrible idea. And yet we started meeting at the Masics house at their barn. And if you came to the barn, that was seventh floor. We'd food outside and the first one, Carter of course wore a black sweater and is sweating through himself, right? It's like, bro, it was like 95. You don't own anything other than black. And this was the seventh floor, the genesis of this place. And the invitation's simple for us. It's like, man, there has to be seventh floor everywhere. This is the community that God wants to build, not us, him. And we've been working on music that helps us understand who we are as a community. And it was probably about six months ago that we huddled in a house and recorded songs that you're going to get in about four weeks. But one of them in particular was a song that Lauren and Carrington wrote from their perspective about the seventh floor. And I can tell you when they played it for me the first 10 times, I just weep. I just cry because the seventh floor saved me too. Like Acts chapter 13 being weaved into something bigger than myself saved me. And so I thought it'd be kind of cool to show you and let you hear, well, what is the seventh floor? This is a song from Forest City Worship. It's the seventh floor. Um, check it out. Bread and conversation, the kind of love that took away 
all our fears just from being at the table and how we tasted and saw the goodness of god in ways we'd never seen before we'll tell our children about the seventh floor took us out somehow brought us all together and when we talk about it now we're grateful for that weather cause now these are the days we've been praying for oh these are the days we've been praying for we'll tell our children about the seventh So the invitation is simple. Will you come sit at the table with us? Like you can if you want. Will you help us grow what Jesus had in mind in this space? Because if you want and you think the Northwest suburbs need seventh floors everywhere, we do too. We're asking you to join us. Will you stand with me? I want to pray a prayer of blessing on us as we leave. I believe that this city, and not just Elgin, I could name 15 to 20 cities around this area, from Carpentersville to Crystal Lake to South Barrington, down to Wicker Park, needs seven floors, Acts 13's to spring up, we need them. Churches united, not by some mission statement or buildings or funds or even leadership, united in one thing and one thing only, it's Jesus, only Jesus. And will it be messy? You better believe it, it's going to be messy. We're going to have people around the table that don't look like each other and don't always think like each other. And we disagree and we fight and we argue. But we still come back to this one thing, but it is in him and him alone. In him and him alone. May it be so. And so may the Lord bless you. May he keep you, may he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you this week. 
May the Lord turn his face towards you. We'll give you peace and may it be so in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Go in peace. Next week, we continue in the series. Love you all.